salty ocean, off where the waves are free. The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Welcome to the 100th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvargan, along with my co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. We're joined by our sometimes substitute co-host, Natasha Benjamin. Hello, everyone. Hi, Vicki and David. Hey, today's our 100th episode of Rising Tide since I launched the podcast, interviewing former New York Times reporter and author of Battle of Ocean, Ian Urbina, back in March of 2020. I just got back a month ago from an, um, a patrol off the coast of the Gambia, and the goal there was to uh, board and um, uh, inspect uh, Chinese uh, fishing vessels, and um, we we aborted and arrested three. And um, uh, you know the the these were mostly Senegalese and Sierra Leoneans who were on these ships and working for the Chinese. Working for the Chinese, and um, one ship in particular where the men were sleeping was literally a large metal box you know it was uh i couldn't believe it you know it had no windows um uh you know uh it had a steel plate that had been cut in in a metal wall and that was the entry point and then when you wanted to close it you had to put a latch through it but there was no ceiling to it and the um, um and it was on the level of the deck. So when water came on deck, it would go right into this room. And there are mattresses, foam mattresses that lined the space and a power cord and a power strip in there. So add it all up, you've got, you know, an oven that catches fire real quick. And right, and how many men were sleeping in there? There were eight men in a space that should handle two. Mm. Yeah, it was, it was like the, the stuff you remember from history, slave pictures and history books. Vicki, I believe you joined the show for our 13th episode in late 2020 when we spoke with our friend and author of Blue Mind, Jay Wallace Nichols. Wow. We go back that far with this podcast. How cool. Um, Jay was amazing. I love interviewing him, but it was so sad because it was right after that big California fire and he lost his home. Fortunately, he didn't lose any family members. So speaking of big stress, when when is the first time you got to the water after you lost your home earlier this month? Uh, immediately. Yeah. Immediate. I mean, not not that night. I was in that was fight or flight mode. And I was right. not thinking I was performing uh, an escape. I was not thinking broadly or clearly or creatively about my wellness or really very much at all but i had to go to the water there was a time that, a time period where i didn't know i i would have placed a bet that the house burned but i didn't know and nobody was able to get in there things were just so hot and still burning um inaccessible and so i had that fear of losing everything in the unknown which is just torture so yeah, straight to the ocean. You know, it buys you a little bit of clarity in a way. Uh, it turns out it's also largely free uh, as long as our beaches stay accessible and we don't trash the place. It's uh, it's our best medicine. And I, you know, I wrote a book about that, and then I, it was put to the test uh, last week in a big way. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. 
I remember another outstanding episode in June of 2020 at the height of social justice protest with ocean activist and TV personality Danny Washington. That episode was titled Black Lives and Blue Water. Among the many things Danny had to say. This generation that's coming up is ready to see the proper changes happen in our society so that we can truly protect the planet. And, you know, it feels like a lot of uh, just a lot of fluff talk that has happened over the last couple of decades when it comes to um, changing the course of climate change and, and making sure that we protect species that are going extinct because we're seeing men and women who happen to be black being killed and shot dead in the street in broad daylight. Um, and yet we haven't figured out how to take care of each other. So how in the world are we going to take care of everything else on this planet? But I think overall Gen Z, they they they're just they're tired of seeing the old script play out they don't want to see more um patterns continue that are detrimental to human life and to um all living things and so they're gonna i think they're the ones who are really going to turn this ship around um we just need to give them the chance and as horrible as covid19 has been and for all the families who have lost loved ones you know it's it's unprecedented I never thought in my lifetime that I would experience something like this. Um, but at the same time, it could, it could be, it could be that we may, you know, debate this in years to come, but it could be one of the, the best things that could have happened for humanity right now um, because it brought this existential crisis of climate change uh, to the forefront of people's minds. It, it made us reconsider and think about the value of life and, and our way of life. What were some of your favorite shows, Vicky? Oh, there are so many. Um, hmm, I really loved when we were talking with Dr. Craig Downs, the scientist who discovered that certain chemical sunscreens were killing coral reefs, impacting seagrass beds, and also really changing the sex of freshwater fishes. It's, it's all so strange. I remember his describing his aha moment in a grocery store in Jamaica. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> that was funny. We were tasked to look at why coral reefs were declining in the Virgin Islands National Park in St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And we came across this one bay called Trunk Bay. And there was nothing in the watershed except for Kenny Chesney's house, the, the country music singer, way on top of the mountain. There was just just unbroken forest from his house all the way down to, to the shoreline and nothing made sense to us. Um, you know, to, to, to quote Sherlock Holmes, we saw, but we just didn't observe anything that would, um, cause such massive destruction. And this was in about 2004, 2005. So this was really before climate change became a, a serious concern for most people. Um, what killed these reefs in Trunk Bay was not climate change. We couldn't figure out what it was. And um, me and, and several other scientists, uh, we were really perplexed. I was starting to get frustrated. And when I get frustrated, I go straight to the cookie aisle at the grocery store. And I was talking to another scientist uh, on the other side of the aisle. I was, in the, of course, in the cookie aisle getting the Oreos. And a Rastafarian gentleman overheard us complaining. And at the end of the aisle, he stopped me and in his, his Antillian uh, accent, um, basically told me it's the tourists. And I'm like, what, what do you mean the tourists? And he goes, 
go there around 5 p.m. before the sun sets. And on a doldrum day, he says it's beautiful because as the sun is setting, the the oil from all the sunscreen lotion basically just kind of lights up and becomes iridescent and scintillates across the surface of the water. And so the very next day, as luck would have it, um, we arrived around 4 p.m. All the uh, the cruise ship tourists had, had left the bay by 3.30, 4 p.m. And it was a doldrum day, and it looked like an oil spill. And uh, I kind of cut my teeth on the Exxon Valdez oil spill um, in my early 30s. And we're like, dang, this guy was right. And we went to a NOAA scientist in Colorado, Carrie Wall, who specializes in the sounds fish make and actually could imitate them pretty well. <laughs> I do, do remember that. That was very funny. When I'm diving, there's usually uh, in the in the reefs, usually a lot of grunts. Is that fish named after its sound? Yep. <laughs> We're not very original when it comes to naming <laughs> fish. We, we have drums and we have grunts and it's because they sound like a grunt. Yes, that's exactly it. Could you give us a grunt fish sound? <laughs> I don't think I'm going to do it justice. It, it's it's looking like a uh, kind of a kind of a sound. I'm a little bit again. I'm a little bit rusty on my grunts. Uh. <laughs> okay. So many good podcasts, but of course, as a surfer, I have slight preference for our podcast with Diana Barra talking about her Wahini project, bringing poor inland communities to surf and get in the ocean. And also our amazing podcast with Cassia Medor, professional longboarder and ocean activist who talked about the stoke of surfing with her surf sisters. It's only been up until very recently that the surfing world has actually given equal pay to women when it comes to competition, has tried to give more of an equal venue to them. And, and we're seeing that, you know, with the rest of our civilization as well. You know, it's like really women fighting hard for getting equal recognition. And, and really now you're seeing it out there. The lenses are pointed at the women. The women are, are, are able to kind of like show what's up. And and I think it's really important, but women have really been out there for a long time doing it, you know, since the beginning of what surfing was, the king and queen of Hawaii surfing waves together. It's always been very inclusive. And I really think that it's the lifestyle that people get into. And it's the lifestyle and that connection with nature, that connection with life in uh, the purest, most raw form, that connection with riding waves, which is essentially you're like riding creation as it is happening in real time. And there's no two waves that are ever alike. It's that kind of, you know, waking up at sunrise and seeing the sunrise from the water and like riding those first waves in the light of day and, and seeing some otters maybe over there, some, you know, a whale in the background or, you know, it's, it's really these connections. So I think it's like a really deep and, and kind of spiritual connection that's beyond beyond the rational mind that really gets people to surf. And then it's the connection and the community that happens on the beach in and around riding waves and sharing and collaborating. That is what keeps people going back. And then Natasha, you introduced us to a couple of filmmakers who are working to reveal how neoprene wetsuits used by surfers are produced at a polluting petrochemical factory in Louisiana that's poisoning a low-income African-American community in what's known as Cancer Alley on the lower Mississippi and how local activists are fighting back. 
But I think the environmental justice activist that was most impressive to us was Hilton Kelly. He left his polluted hometown of Port Arthur, Texas, to become a successful actor in Oakland. And then he returned back home to help fight the toxic plastics and other refineries polluting his town. And he told us how he reconnected with his community, uh, reading a poem he'd written for a Juneteenth celebration. Yeah, that was pretty touching. So I did a, a poetry piece and it's called My True History. And if you guys like to hear it, I can I can share it with you. Please. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so I did a poem called My True History to help inspire. Whatever happened to my true history? We were more than slaves running to be free. We were kings and queens on the other side of the sea. The first coin was minted in the African land. The first sale was set by a black man's hands. Stripped from our land and sold into poverty, we did what we could to hold on to our dignity. We worked the land, cleaned and built for free, chained and shackled. Some could not flee, but for those that could, Harriet Tugman set them free. We learned the language and lost our own, but to our heritage and culture, we still hold on. You see, Louis H. Latimer, now he was all right. Without this man, Thomas Edison had a fight. He helped put the carbon filament into the light. Even though he was not born free, this man had vision that helped us to see. Many ideas and inventions have been stolen from thee, but if we still had them now, how far along would we be? Some well-to-do say everyone is equal now. Some well-to-do say everyone is free. Some well-to-do haven't taken the time to look at things statistic and economically. You see, Juneteenth started in the Texas land because we were the last to know that slavery was over and we didn't have to pick cotton for free no more. But they held on to the knowledge just a little bit longer where they figured out the economics of this godforsaken Yankee blunder. So the chains came off our wrists and necks. We didn't even get a thank you or a back paycheck. Whatever happened to my true history? Wow. And I can see where the community would rally behind you after hearing <laughs> that. It's, I assume that's and what that's happened. that's exactly what happened. We've sure had some amazing folks with us, including an Academy Award winning producer, a Pulitzer Prize winning hurricane journalist, a famous artist named Wyland, a member of Congress, the head of NOAA. Oh, so many. Some of the livelier episodes included our talks with explorers Philippe and Ashlyn Cousteau, Roz Savage and Margot Pellegrino, both amazing women who rode solo, Roz, who rode across three oceans, and Margot, who went from Miami to Maine and then Seattle to San Diego in an outrigger canoe. She paddled all that way, plus inland, took the inland route oh, from right. uh, New York to I New know. Orleans. So, Incredible. Uh, she even met some of my family members when she did that. And don't forget our most recent episode with amazing underwater photographer Brian Scarry. Oh, gosh, I love that right whale photograph. It's so famous and touching. And then, of course, there was the Sea Shepherd founder, Captain Paul Watson. Let's listen to what Paul had to say. I had approached all these uh, TV networks and said, look, the biggest uh, show on Discovery right now is about a bunch of men going to a cold, remote area of the planet to catch crabs. And uh, I can give you men and women going to a colder, more remote, more hostile environment to save whales. It, it has to be more compelling than catching crabs every week. And Animal Planet went for it. And we did uh, seven seasons, which is a, it was their top show. And that, that brought a, a terrific amount of support to, to us because of that. 
And so you had seven seasons with Whale Wars. Um, why was there not an eighth? Well, a very simple reason for that. Uh, we won. The Japanese whaling fleet is no longer in the Southern Ocean Whale uh, Sanctuary. And uh, so it's fully protected now. It, we have to keep in mind that was called the Southern Ocean Whale Sanctuary. So what are you killing whales for in a sanctuary? And uh, finally, the International Court of Justice ruled that it was illegal. And they stopped for one year. They started again, but we kept the pressure on. And finally, they left for good. And as of 2019, there's no whaling in international waters anywhere on the planet. That's a beautiful development. No pelagic whaling. All whaling today is restricted to the territorial waters of Norway 1, Japan 2, uh, Iceland 3, and uh, Denmark 4. Those are the only real whaling nations. And uh, so since I started in, say, 1974 to protect whales, I would say that 95% of the world's whaling operations have been shut down. So it's been a it's been a very successful movement, not just for Sea Shepherd, but all of the groups that were that were opposing whaling worldwide, putting pressure on the International Whaling Commission or directly confronting them or boycotts, all those sorts, all working together. I've always said that the strength of an ecosystem is in diversity, therefore the strength of a movement is in diversity. So all of those approaches contributed to that wonderful success story. We were fortunate to interview many scientists and explorers on the show, including my own advisor, Les Kaufman at Boston University. Um, we also had Jeremy Jackson and Nancy Knowlton and Steve Palumbi and abalone scientist Kristen Accolino, who was so much fun. Oh, and then there was Mickey McComb Kospa from Boulder, who did all of her shark research and all kinds of crazy things. She dives with white sharks to take their measurements with lasers. I mean, how sci-fi are we are we becoming? Uh, it's so wild. And I have to ask you, because I got this image in my head. Are you ever like underwater pointing lasers at large sharks? Oh, yeah, absolutely. All the time. I mean, we're measuring them. We we uh, we use these twin lasers and and we shoot them at the sharks to help us to you know measure their total length. And again, it's just one more layer of data. You know, we have sex. Um, you know, we have size that can help us estimate ages. Um, you know, if we go to a place that has repeated um, you know measures, uh, these animals stay there for year to year. We can start looking at growth rates, which is really cool. So it's just so, another. So wait, layer. you're you're in scuba gear carrying like a waterproof housed laser beam yeah absolutely <laughs> lasers okay where are the photos where are yeah. the photos i'll send you video and photo you can have it all well and then there was a really interesting conversation with dr sylvia earl and her daughter liz taylor and they were talking about like what it was like to have a mother-daughter relationship and liz was saying what it was like growing up with a famous oceanographer and i just loved that uh, that that dynamic that the two of them had early on it did her work really did take her out into the field quite a bit. And so she'd be gone for long periods of time and we didn't have cell phones and things. So we had to wait for postcards and then eventually maybe a ship to shore radio call, something like that. So there was a lot of um, reliance on my grandmother as well. And she was uh, kind of known as the bird lady of, of Dunedin and, and Florida and would bring in all kinds of birds uh, from, you know, blue jays to pelicans to egrets and everything in between so it was it was really you know kind of a i guess a woman-led household and and now it's evolved into kind of a you know woman-led business so so did you have a pet pelican as a child <laughs> we had a pelican for a long time well we had several pelicans uh we had 
you know, typically what would happen is that they would arrive to us uh, with their pouches um, slashed up by fishermen mm. or entangled in line or with broken wing or something like that. And there weren't really very many uh, wildlife rescue centers or any re rescue centers at that time. So uh, my grandmother, who was also a nurse, uh, she would just kind of, you know, mend these creatures. And I, I kind of learned alongside. And when did you first spawn Liz? Were, was this before <laughs> or after you went, uh, went underwater with the, uh, with the habitats and the uh, fellow aquanauts? The, the first time I had a chance to live underwater was in 1970, and Liz was 10 years old. So she shared the experience vicariously, but Liz has been on lots of expeditions. And in Florida, we live close to the water, and so she spent early years just getting acquainted with the ocean by being in, on, around, and often under it. But whenever I could on these <laughs> trips away, I scoop one or more sometimes <laughs> i have three children and occasionally all th three of them would come on board you remember liz in 1978 uh, you were a little bit older but you still had that what you do now that lovely long <laughs> golden hair and we went to the bahamas and met up with the dolphin sandy he just loved your hair <laughs> He yes, he did. He, we were, you know, diving there on the reef, and I was, you know, going along minding my own business, and all of a sudden there was this terrific yank on my hair, and I wheeled around, getting ready to, you know, slug my brother, who would, you know, normally be doing something like that, and and here was this dolphin, you know, he just had literally this this ha 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 ha, you know, smile on his face, like he just really got way of something, and. And he came back and he was like flossing his teeth in my hair, you know, with my hair. And he was really a pest, but, but he was, he was a, a great animal. And he just, you know, he just wanted to, to visit with people. Right. And it's that sort of experience that over time, those experiences stack up and make Liz the person she is. Another great family interview was with activist sisters, Diana and Julia Cohn of the Plastic Pollution Coalition. And then there was another explorer hero of ours retired Navy Captain Don Walsh, who recently passed away at the age of 92 and was one of the first two humans to reach the deepest point on our ocean planet back in 1960. Like many of our guests, he was also no fan of deep sea mining. I wholly agree with the uh, people hold a, a negative opinion of it right now uh, because we have not done the necessary environment. I mean, on land, we don't hesitate to do environmental impact studies before we take, undertake most uh, major activities uh, that will have an effect on the environment. And I don't understand why that's not considered to be the same rule when you're in the oceans. They haven't done that kind of work. And the International Seabed Authority, which is a UN agency located in uh, Kingston, Jamaica, they kind of govern the allocation of, of uh, mining sites and that sort of thing. I think that they're they're moving too quickly. They have not had the budgets they need to really uh, invoke a full-grown, perhaps, environmental study program of various mining sites. And the thing is, it's it is a it is a uh, activity. It's going to disrupt where you're working. It's kind of like clear-cutting the forest uh, because it's it doesn't differentiate between uh, the ore, if you will. The, material they bring up and the things that live with that or the seafloor. 
you're going to scrape off. And these are organisms, many of them in thousands of years to populate an area. They're not going to repopulate quickly. Well, I think that uh, with respect to ocean mining, the ISA needs to look in the mirror. I'm not saying they're invertebrate. I'm sure that people are, make decisions, but they seem to be more governed by the users, the potential users, than the overall consideration of the health of the oceans. And that's got to stop. But overall, I would hope that ISA would get some backbone and, uh, and become a truly independent and a steward, steward, if you will, responsible for stewardship of this deep ocean resource. Deep sea mining. Oh, now that is a controversial topic. But in the bigger picture, what we found in our interviews is that the ocean is a way to really bring people together, despite their political views. And I really think that Ralph Nader gave a great example of that when he was on the show. On the shores of the Atlantic and Pacific and the Gulf, uh, there are people, regardless of how they label themselves, conservatives, liberals, libertarians, progressives, they want the same thing. They want an ocean where they can swim, beaches that are clean enough for them to lie on and soak up the sun with their families. They want to be able to fish and sail, and they want to be able to pass this on to their descendants. And with 2023 just having been declared the hottest year in human history and marine heat waves endangering coral reefs and kelp forests, I, I think we need to reflect on what science fiction author Kim Stanley Robinson told us on the show about how we have to stay in the fight no matter what. The biosphere is so robust that if you don't drive things to extinctions, you give them a break, they will come back. So this work of restoring the biomes of the earth to health is good work because in some ways we just got to get out of the way. Sometimes you can provide some artificial whale poop at the surface and that helps to prime the pump. But by and large, if we get out of the way, things that haven't gone extinct will come back. It will be slightly different. It'll be mongrelized by the way we've moved all these species around the earth so intensely. It won't come back the same way as it would before, but it will come back to a health of its own that is new. And in the oceans, because of freedom of action and the way that the ocean creatures tend to um, be wide ranging, um, that health could spread fast and spread wide. So yes, it's a, and how many stories tell this? As you say, there's so many stories with uh, car crashes or divorces or the, the petty concerns of individual middle-class people. The literature spent way too much time telling those stories and not telling the big exciting stories of of saving the earth without having, as you said, some white guy with a gigantic rocket flying in to save the day with a techno silver bullet. It's not gonna work that way. It's more like gardening, which obviously is problematic when you say, oh, I'm gonna write an exciting novel about gardening. One shudders, but when it's the earth you're gardening, um, it gets more interesting. And of course, we couldn't be doing any of this without the help of our editor, chief editor, Charlie Landon of Studio Cape May in San Diego, Blue Frontier's social media guru, Nick Paz, Ellie Curlew, who advises us on our media, and our latest addition to the Rising Tide crew, producer Holden Hardcastle of Fluid Studios. And keep listening because we're just getting started. Some future episodes you can look forward to include uh, one of our earliest guests, Master Navigator Nainoa Thompson of the Polynesian Voyaging Society, 
uh, the Coast Guard Admiral in charge of District 11 that covers Oregon to Peru, uh, as well as a whale wrangler, an octopus author, an offshore wind technician, lots of folks. Remember, the only resource not fully exploited in the ocean is good storytelling. Again, we just have such an overabundance of ocean riches. So thanks again to all of our listeners for joining us on the Rising Tide Ocean Podcast. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free. The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, tear, tear. Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.